welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Kristen Eichhammer. And joining us in studio today for the first time ever is Sarah Feldposh. Sarah serves as the Director of Government Relations for Heritage Action for America. Sarah, thanks for being here. Good to be here. Well, we are super excited for the conversation ahead. I have a quick public service announcement before we dive into the show. So the Golden Globe nominations... They are out. The award ceremonies are in January. I don't actually personally usually follow these award ceremonies that closely. Do you all watch them, Academy Awards, not all that stuff? Not a bit. I do <laughs> not. Okay. Yeah. Well, so I guess this is just as much a public service announcement for us as it is for all of you listening. <laughs> this is like, oh, okay, I should probably be more in the know on this. And sadly, I have not seen most of these movies that have been nominated, which maybe means that I am living in the dark or means that Hollywood's just doing its own thing. I don't know. Yeah, there's been a lot of drama this year. And I, I remember when those, you know, actors, they, you know, decided they were going to protest and strikes is the a strikes. better word. Yes, yes. They were going to strike. And I'm kind of sitting here like, OK, cool. So maybe some of these Netflix shows will be delayed. But like, I'm usually behind anyway. So I don't yeah. really care. Yeah. Um, but yeah, not not super disappointed or, or not super in the know of any of this. I know, I know. Well, I guess maybe over Christmas got some watching to yeah. do. So Best Motion Picture nominations as far as dramas go. We have Anatomy of a Fall, Killers of the Flower Moon, Maestro, Oppenheimer, which I am ashamed to admit I still have not seen. I know, I haven't. Seen. We should have done I the did, Barbenheimer. I did see it. You did yeah. see yeah, it? Yeah, they saw it in theaters, and it was a long, slow burn, but it was great. Okay, okay. Yeah, no, I've heard... I've heard the only complaint people be like it was a little too long but people have raved about it mm-hmm. and and so that that definitely needs to happen. Past Lives is another nomination under Dramas and The Zone of Interest. Mm. I, I haven't heard of I know. Last two. I know. I haven't either. So, got to catch up. And then as far as best motion picture in the musical and comedy genre, we have Air American fiction, of course, Barbie. Have seen that. We all know that. Uh, the Holdovers, May, December, Poor Things. Again, apart from Barbie. Well, we got some we got some viewing to do, I guess. Yeah. Maybe we'll do like a, a movie review with each one of these ahead of January's award ceremony. Golden I need Globes. to look up when that even is. I know. But I do think part of their strike is they weren't able to go out and talk about the movies and promote mm. the movies that they were working on. So I think that kind of speaks to the reason sure. that I'm not even familiar with some of these names. Kind Good of as point. a strike ended, now these are being circulated and talked about a little bit more. Yeah. Well, this might be a helpful list to go off of because I don't know about you all, but in my family over Christmas break, it is a struggle bus to find <laughs> entertainment that the whole family can get behind. Yeah. If you have any tips for that, maybe we'll talk about that on the show next week. Give some tips. But Kristen, we are talking all things Congress today. Go ahead. Let us know. What is the plan for Problematic Women today? For sure. Up on today's Problematic Women, it's all about Congress. We break down what Congress has set out to achieve this year and what they have actually achieved. We also dive into the drama that was the speakership, talking why the old Speaker of the House lost his gavel and why we have a new speaker now. Plus, we explain the drama over spending in Congress and what to expect headed into 2024. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week, who joins us later in the show.
Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find those stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a reviewer rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. Well, lawmakers often set really big goals at the beginning of the year for the things that they want to achieve. These are we're talking both in the House and the Senate. And sometimes things are achieved. Oftentimes they're not. And I, I do want to clarify that while promises should always be kept and that there has to be accountability for lawmakers seeking to actually do what they set out to do, there's an element of reality where you know, a, a lawmaker who says we're going to pass legislation to restart construction of a border wall. Well, they might say that in the House and pass that legislation through, which we saw with, for example, H.R. 2, that border security bill that passed back in May. Well, then you have to have the Senate pass it and you have to have the president sign it. <laughs> so there's the way our government is set up is very strategic. We have these multiple layers, levels of accountability, checks and balances. That's all very intentional. But what that also means is it's not easy to pass legislation when one political party doesn't control both the House and the Senate and the White House, which we have right here. Be where obviously the House is controlled right now by Republicans, the Senate by Democrats, and the White House, of course, by a Democrat. So this makes things sticky, and it makes the wheels of Congress in Washington, D.C. turn slow. But let's talk about what the goals were for Congress going into 2023. Let's go all the way back to January. Sarah, you work in the weeds of Congress. You stay on top of all of their happenings what were the big ticket items that at the beginning of this year, Congress said, we are going to achieve X? Yeah, so Congress, as you mentioned, did set out some big and lofty goals, but those were really set before January, right? Mm. As you mentioned, all of these you know, candidates that were campaigning last spring into the fall and then um, moving into the beginning of 2023 all campaigned on their own platforms. But then the House kind of came together, the, the members that were running for the House of Representatives came together on a platform. It was called the Commitment to America. Um, and they laid out several different policy priorities um, that they campaigned on. But then they had set out, OK, once we are elected and we do take back the House and have a conservative Republican majority, these are the things that we are going to to put our mind to and set out to do. So kind of the big pillars of that commitment to America were a strong economy, a safe nation, a free country, and accountable an accountable government. Obviously, huge pillars. A lot of things can fall under those big pillars. And I think that's kind of the point mm -hmm. <laughs> on that campaign trail. It gave people a lot of opportunity to pick what was best for their district and mm -hmm. message on and advance, you know, sort of top line issues in the district. So under those big pillars, they talked about, you know, securing energy independence, fighting inflation, addressing the cost of living, the rising cost of living, national security, kind of parental involvement, which we saw was a really big issue, particularly in the Virginia election, the gubernatorial mm -hmm. election. I'm sure you guys have talked about that a lot on the podcast. So that was a big part of the congressional candidate platform coming into 2023. Yeah, that's huge. Well, how did that go? <laughs> <laughs> what a great question. And I talk about this all the time. You know, you mentioned at 
the top. I work at Heritage Action. I'm day in, day out on the Hill talking to members of Congress, their staff, but then also I'm talking internally in the building. I'm talking Mm -hmm. to the government relations team at the Heritage Foundation. What are you guys hearing from people? What are some of the, the issues that you know, our policy analysts at the foundation are really seeing come to a head through their research and their studies and talking with other policy analysts in the field. And so what did they actually accomplish? I think a lot of people would answer that in a different way, especially because yeah. you said it's divided government. Mm-hmm. So the House can take up one big policy priority. We all said, OK, this is a great idea. H.R. 2, for example, Secure the Border Act came to a consensus, which was a really tough and I'll say personally long and grueling uh, several months in the House to to work to draft the bill, get it across the finish line. But then it's sitting in the Senate. Yeah. Uh, and so we can say, OK, that's a great job that the House did that. But we don't have much to show for it as far as passing the Senate and it being signed into law. So that's one big policy priority that they campaigned on that the House has achieved and the Senate has really stalled out on, largely because it is Democrat-led, as mm-hmm. we know. But I'll also say, to H.R. Uh, 1, the Lower Energy Costs Acts, which aim, which aim to restore energy independence in America, which, again, uh, a lot of members did campaign on that big policy priority. And then, as I mentioned, the Parents' Bill of Rights, mm. parental rights, parental involvement in their child's education was really important. Uh, campaigning for members. And then they actually did this year pass in the House of Representatives a list of parents' bill of rights and kind of increasing the transparency of what's happening in some of these K-12 schools, really giving parents some tools to see, okay, what's happening? And then how can I be involved in the process of my child's education? Yeah. And you talk about each of these bills that were passed through the House, they they were grueling. And I think that's largely because there was only a nine-seat majority, right? For Republicans, that's like one of the smallest. Yeah. Seen. And I it, now... <laughs> The ups and downs of this Congress. I, I'm, what a journey. I'm smiling and laughing a lot because it's uh, obviously something that I'm dealing with every day. But the majority, a very slim majority that we started with in the House, this Congress, is dwindling. And we're going to end this Congress with, you know, a two-seat majority going into uh, maybe a one-seat majority into the next year with another member resigning for, for another position. So... When you're looking at those numbers in the majority to actually bring together very disparate groups of people that have different interests throughout the United States and their constituents have different interests, certainly a lot of Republicans came together under that commitment to America, like I mentioned, those big, big policy ideas and those platforms. But when it comes down to it, you have this big sweeping bill that's going to address, for example, HR1, energy costs. There's a lot of different interests geographically, right? Mm -hmm. And so in trying to bring everyone together, that becomes a very difficult task. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I think about 2023 in Congress, my, and I'd be curious to get y'all's thoughts, but my best guess is what this year is going to be remembered for specifically in the House is the ousting of Speaker Kevin McCarthy and then a very dramatic and back and forth and various people trying to get enough votes to win the speakership and and now ultimately Mike Johnson becoming Speaker of the House. But I mean, that was historic to see a sitting House speaker ousted by his own party. Matt Gates, of course, of Florida, introduced that that motion to remove House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. And we've talked about this on the show. But I mean, that you almost picture the House like a snow globe and it was just shaking, shaking, shaking. Mm-hmm. 
it was a very lively several weeks. Yeah, a truly, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head, truly historic moment. And I think this has, you know, conversations around ousting the speaker for a variety of different reasons has been talked about in, you know, all of the Congresses before this one, going back to, you know, the early 2000s, mid 2000s. I mean, Speaker John Boehner faced similar issues. Speaker Paul Ryan faced similar issues. They didn't actually get to the place where it was put to members on the floor, uh, up or down vote mm-hmm. on ousting the speaker. So really an important moment for the country. And I think as we're reflecting on 2023 and what really happened, definitely cannot cannot miss that. But I think kind of just walking through you know, how we got there. I think I think a lot of different members would have a lot of different answers. Yep. I think a lot of different pundits have a lot of different answers on how we really got there. For some members, it was a personal issue that they had with then Speaker Kevin McCarthy. They some members, and this has been you know covered in the news media and all over Twitter, of course, that they didn't trust him, that they, through different negotiations, he would say one thing and do another. And it was all this person's word against this person's word, and it just became a breakdown in the trust, really, with Kevin McCarthy and certain members mm-hmm. that chose to vote against him and, and take him out of his, his position as speaker. And then for other members, it was a disappointment in how the first session of the the Congress had went, how the Speaker dealt with the debt ceiling negotiations with the White House, the strong negotiating position that came out of the House. They passed in late spring the Limit Save Grow Act, which was a really strong bill that set caps on spending for fiscal year FY 2024 that would really curb the trajectory of spending. And, you know, I think a lot of members felt that after that bill passed, okay, we have a strong negotiating position in a, in a conservative stance. And then going into negotiations with the White House and Democrats, because as we said, divided government, that they felt that McCarthy didn't represent those interests well enough mm-hmm. and that they didn't, he didn't represent that strong negotiating position that conservatives mustered uh, through the House. And so that is going into the summer. You have a lot of members disappointed in that policy position and that strategy that McCarthy employed throughout the summer, the spring into summer on the debt ceiling. And then it came time for federal spending expiration, mm-hmm. right, at the end of September each year, which I think we'll kind of get mm-hmm. uh, into the spending stuff a little bit later. Um, but it really all came to a head at the end of September. Kevin McCarthy put on the floor a continuing resolution, uh, albeit in this particular instance, it was a reduced spending level, and it included also HR2, which is a border security bill that, that I think we know well. But members were really disappointed in the broken appropriations process mm-hmm. that at the beginning of this Congress, you know, all members really came to the table and said, we want to do it differently this year. Yep. We're going to set out to do it differently. And they felt that that strategy didn't work, and McCarthy didn't didn't advance those interests well enough. And so that last CR vote, they said enough is enough and voted to remove him. Yeah. I was going to say they definitely did some things differently this year. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of things. <laughs> uh, well, we are going to dive deeper in just a moment into that spending conversation and into specifically how things are now under newly elected House Speaker Mike Johnson, how things are being done differently as it relates to appropriations, which is just a fancy word for spending bills. But before we talk money and Capitol Hill, I want to tell you all about a great opportunity for some Christmas gifts this year. So during the month of December, we are so excited to be joining with, partnering with 
Hope Beauty. Hope Beauty is a makeup line founded by Hope Harvard, and it is on a mission to revive and revolutionize femininity by retelling the stories of the pioneers of beauty, the women of scripture. Hope Beauty has cleverly matched their stories with makeup to enhance your beauty routine because, of course, nothing shines brighter than a godly glow. Every product has an inspirational meaning from their marvelous mascara, which I have and use every day, uh, that is intended to remind you that you are fearfully, wonderfully, and marvelously made by God. Their lip liner products are named after women in the Bible, so every single makeup item is matched with an element of scripture, is matched with a woman in the Bible. Just a really, really beautiful idea, an encouraging way to start the morning to add, I think, a kind of a sweet reminder to your morning routine as you're putting on your makeup. Hope Beauty is truly makeup with a message. And you can shop at HopeBeautyUSA.com using the code PROBLEMATICWOMEN, all running together, PROBLEMATICWOMEN, all caps, to get 10% off your purchase. So whether you want some new red lipstick for all the holiday parties, or you want to get your mom or your sister or your cousin or your friend a little bit of a fun and meaningful gift this year, go ahead and check out HopeBeautyUSA.com. With that, Kristen, tell us what we have going on on the spending front. Oh, baby. Wow. (laughs) This has been one crazy year. And if we we want to take a, a quick pivot and just kind of look at what's been going on. We've seen our government clawing back from COVID, COVID spending. We're, mm-hmm. we're seeing them, you know, acknowledge that there's been a lot of fraud and trying to claw back some of that money. We've seen IRS fights and how much should we be giving to the IRS? You know, <laughs> yeah. we've seen debt ceiling fights. We've seen a ton of stuff, nothing related to NASA, obviously, because you get the best <laughs> bang for your buck from that place. Just kidding. I'm actually not even sure if that's true. But <laughs> um, got a plug. But anywho, that, the biggest fights this year have, I feel like, all been spending. Mm-hmm. Right now, what we're looking at are 12 appropriation bills to fund the government for the, the new fiscal year. And Congress needs needs to pass all 12 and each funds a different part of the government, including NASA. So there's, there's that. I have a stake in this game, kind of. Um, this year with the new House Speaker, we are trying, like you said, Sarah, or he is, I'm not trying to do things differently, but kind of walk us. I know I kind of highlighted some of my personal favorites, but what are we seeing with these spending fights? What are maybe some of the craziest things we're seeing out there on the Hill? Yeah, if we could just Back up, kind of talk top line on government spending. So as you mentioned, the appropriations bills, that's just sort of a a fancy word for spending bills. But it's really government spending is broken up into two categories. There's mandatory spending and discretionary spending. So Mm. when we talk about annual appropriations bills and annual appropriations, it is that discretionary side of spending. So that's subject to congressional consideration each year. And that Mm. happens at the end of September. And then one full year again for that next September. So Speaker Johnson did things a little bit differently. We were operating under that short-term continuing resolution in the fall, which got us to about mid-November. And so we were operating under Johnson's leadership, and he was faced with the decision, okay, it's the end of November right now. I can either consider a huge spending bill, which usually happens if Congress is operating under that short-term continuing resolution. uh, Usually the speaker and leadership in both parties will say, okay, we need to just clear the decks here. Let's get us into next year. Let's live to fight another day. And so they'll 
push it just a little bit further and say, okay, we're going to give ourselves a little bit more time to continue considering, like you mentioned, those 12 appropriations bills. And that usually leads us up into a holiday deadline, which members are then rushed to the planes at the end of the year. And they're like, okay, I got to get out of here. So let's bundle all of these things up together. Let's fund the government and get out of town. Johnson had a different idea. He said, let's take a step back. We can choose to split up. It's called a laddered continuing resolution. I also had to delve into this at (laughs) length because this hasn't been done before, uh, at least in recent history. So he split up all of those 12 appropriations bills into two separate groups, Mm. got us past that big holiday looming deadline that we usually see each year. So pushed us into the new year, a little bit more time to continue considering those 12 individual appropriations bills. But like I said, it separated them into two separate pots. One will expire in January, and then the next will expire in February. So now we're operating under two separate funding deadlines for all of those differing appropriations bills. Clear as mud, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Absolutely crystal clear. No, no, no. But essentially, we have two big buckets headed into the new year, yeah. and Congress has to say, okay, this we're we're going to assign X number of dollars to this bucket and this bucket. I think what well, they have uh, a mid-January deadline for one and uh, early-ish February deadline for the yes. other. Is that right? Yes, that's right. But the goal was one, as I mentioned to not bundle all of these appropriations bills together at the end of the year, say, here, everyone, up or down vote. Do you want to fund the government at this this level or not? And then go home to your families for Christmas. Johnson said, let's give us a little bit more time. I just got the speaker's gavel. Mm -hmm. I'm still figuring out the state of play here. What can pass? What can't pass? What are some of the really difficult issues that my members are dealing with in their Mm -hmm. districts? What are some of their priorities on spending bills? And so... People kind of gave him members, gave him the benefit of the doubt. He's in his honeymoon period right Mm -hmm. now, which I think a lot of people have been talking about. How long will it last? (laughs) And so he said, let's talk about this in the new year. Well, I guess not really let's talk about it in the new year. Let's talk about it now, but let's vote on it in the new year, bypassing that holiday holiday deadline. That's so interesting, too. And I, I really like the timing of this because I feel as though, you know, as if holiday shopping isn't hard enough, we're now considering well, how are we spending money on the government? Like, what are we doing? And that pressure has always been created. We've seen this kind of pressure created with different bills to the NDAA, for instance. Our defense authorization bill often has a ton of stuff loaded, and people are like, well, do you want to fund the military or not? It's very manipulative. But I think what's very cool about this timeline is we're going home, right? We're going back to our districts. We're not keeping people here and preventing them from going home. They can go to their districts, kind of get, you know, maybe some Jesus, hopefully, if they're (laughs) Christian, if not, you know, whatever else. And they can talk to people that are actually impacted by those issues Mm -hmm. rather than staying in the, you know, bubble that is D.C. Yeah, the swamp. And so I do really like this. And this has not been done before. Is that correct? Yeah. And I think another part of this is when we talk about appropriations bills and, and the importance of them and the drama that really does surround them each year is because you know Congress has the power of the purse mm-hmm. as the constitution outlines and we talk about you know show me your budget and I'll show you your priorities mm-hmm. and so when we talk about appropriations bills what are we going to be spending money on conservatives are really looking at the size and scope of government. So these bills that are providing spending authority for the government um, at all these different agencies really 
Congress's role here uh, is to say, no, you can't use money, not just like the top line level. Okay, we have that debate. That debate is really still ongoing, even for the current fiscal year that we're in, uh, that top line level of spending. But what are you spending your money on? We Mm -hmm. talk about all these egregious rules coming out of the Biden administration, um, all these different uh, policy efforts that are pumped out through this administration, but really... Congress has the opportunity to say, what is going on here? Okay, let's look at these four rules that this department just issued and say, we're not going to fund these rules. They make no sense. You, The unelected bureaucrats that are writing these rules shouldn't have a say in all of these big policy changes. And so it really is reclaiming that power of the purse mm. through this budgeting and appropriations process yeah. in Congress. It's very smart. In an ideal world, of course, we would have it buttoned up and done on October 1st at the beginning of the new fiscal year. But I don't even know, at least in my lifetime, like I don't even know if that's Yeah, I don't know. I don't know the last time that happened. It's been a very, very uh, long time. Yeah, so I think it is important to talk about practical. how broken the process yes. is when we are yes. coming to coming to these decisions. But working within that broken process, I I agree. I think this is wisdom that instead of just rushing something to get it done before the holidays, just to sort of say, there, we got it done, that we can take a step back, that lawmakers can take a step back, and that there can be more strategy around actually pushing for what is important instead of just signing off and saying, yep, we'll just kind of keep spending large amounts of money without that accountability. So I, in my opinion, this process, it creates much more, it brings some light into the whole situation. It allows people good to digest yeah. and understand yes. the, the process. Absolutely. <laughs> because we also have a lot of freshmen out there that are probably like, what is going That's on? That's true too, yeah. <laughs> yeah, which yeah. I think The learning was, curve of Congress. Yeah, I think that was part of, especially some of the, the eager freshmen coming into this Congress and really the start of this Congress as they were negotiating the rules package to set the stage for the House of Representatives and how they were going to operate this year. That was a really big part of some of the concessions that Speaker McCarthy gave to to a lot of these, you know, newer members and certainly conservative members in the House to say, no, we want a voice. We want a seat at the table, whether it's at the Rules Committee, whether it's through the amendment process, on the floor, robust floor debate. And I think it really did embolden a lot of members to use their voice, this Congress, which unfortunately for McCarthy led to his ouster. But I think importantly for for everyone, it allowed more transparency into the process and allows people to to really take this responsibility seriously because they have a little bit more skin in the game here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let's fast forward a little bit and talk about when members of Congress do come back after Christmas. What can we expect? So we are only 17 days away from the start of 2024. I hate that. <laughs> it's so soon. <laughs> but, of course, you know, Congress will come back in January, and lawmakers know it's an election year for for the House and for, of course, some members of the Senate. And so, you know, they're going to be thinking about, all right, what are the things that I still need to really push forward this year to do before, you know, going back to my districts and and asking voters for their support at the ballot box. And of course, it's a presidential election year that adds to the level of stakes. That's going to be even more Americans are turning out to vote this year in, in 2024. So what do you think we can expect from Congress? And I mean, let's just be really practical here in keeping in mind that we do have a divided government. We have a split Congress. Should should we be 
at all optimistic or hopeful that much is going to get done? Well, I always like to be optimistic. <laughs> However, in this instance, I don't know how how, how well suited that is to yeah. be optimistic. Yeah. I think you, you mentioned Good. at the top, it's an election year. And I think that is very important, especially in the House. A lot of these members have an eye toward the election, have an eye toward, okay, I'm looking back at that commitment to America. I'm looking back at this, everything that I campaigned on last year. What mm-hmm. did we really do? What didn't we do? Mm-hmm. And I think that will guide some of the missing pieces of that commitment to America, will guide some of the priorities in the House. But then you also have, as I mentioned, the reality of everything, mm-hmm. that this honeymoon period for Speaker Johnson is coming to an end, that the Republican majority in the House is slimming. Mm-hmm. You have Kevin McCarthy said that he's resigning at the end of this Congress. We have the removal of George Santos. You have another member, Bill Johnson, in, the, in quarter one of 2023 that's leaving office. So again, that dwindling majority and the reality that not much can pass, in addition to those really big ticket items. Mm-hmm currently big ticket items and soon to be expiring programs. Mm. One of those being sort of the conversation, if you were following this week, is extension uh, of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. A short-term extension was put on the National Defense Authorization Act this week. But with that short-term extension, it's going to come up for a vote in April. Mm. So we're going to be having huge conversations in the new year related to that that bill. We're also going to have big conversations into the new year related to for one, finishing FY 2024 funding, but then jumping right into FY 2025 funding, which will, I know, which is already, which is already up in, in September. So, or should be up in September. So (laughs) then we have the farm bill authorization. In addition to all of these big priorities, you have the same time the White House has submitted over a hundred billion dollar supplemental spending request to Congress. Mm. That's in addition to the however much money that Congress is about to authorize for the remainder of uh, FY 2024. You know, over one point five trillion dollars, whatever that exact top line number looks like. We're not sure yet, and so we're going to be staring down that White House supplemental in the new mm-hmm. year. And what what are the positions that each each member are going to take and do we really want to provide another 60 billion dollars in unaccountable funding to Ukraine when our own southern border is isn't closed yep how are we going to provide the necessary support for Israel if mm-hmm. it is attached to unaccountable funding for Ukraine and terrible policies at the southern border mm-hmm. so i think those fights will really continue into the new year and i think as speaker johnson's team starts to settle in a little bit more, finishes some hires. I think hopefully I'm eager for him to hit the ground running in the new year. Yeah. Well, we will we will see. Yeah. <laughs> Lots happening. And I'm just reminded, thinking back to January, of how quickly things can shift and change. And in this year, we, we see it every year, but uh, there's just big events in the news big shifts with this year, a new speaker, Israel now being at war. I mean, just major things that shift priorities, shift the conversation. So buckle up for 2024. It's no doubt there's going to be some more big things going on. Definitely. Especially in an election year. Oh, totally. But Sarah, we want to thank you for bringing your expertise. This is just so helpful to get this full rundown, this full brief on Congress and the wild world of Capitol Hill. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. It was great to be here. I have been a big fan, so I'm happy to be on the show. 
So good. Well, stay tuned because up next, we crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. And we're doing it a little differently. And we actually are getting a chance to talk with our Problematic Woman of the Week on the show. So stay tuned for that conversation. Hey there, this is Virginia Allen, senior news producer and podcast host at The Daily Signal. We see it as our mission to cut through the liberal media spin and provide honest, thorough, and responsible reporting on the most important issues of the day. But we can't do it without your help. And as we approach the end of the year, The Daily Signal is counting on donations from listeners just like you. We are the nonprofit news outlet of the Heritage Foundation, and we rely on the generous gifts of our supporters. Please help us by making a tax-deductible year-end gift. You can do so by visiting dailysignal.com slash donate. Your gift will ensure we continue producing cutting-edge journalism and investigative reporting. Again, that website is dailysignal.com slash donate. Thanks again for listening to our Daily Signal podcast, whether Problematic Women or the Daily Signal podcast. We are so grateful for your support. Taylor Reese is here on the line with us to share a little bit about her passion for filmmaking and about her documentary, Dead Name. Taylor, welcome to Problematic Women. Ah, thank you so much for having me. Well, this is such an intense film project that you took on creating this documentary, Dead Name. How did you first get into filmmaking and storytelling? Let's just say I have been a journalist for decades. (laughs) Storytelling, I, I think, is second nature for me, and particularly when, you know, the, the tough stories, the difficult stories to tell, the stories that go unheard, the stories that need a voice, that's, I've always been drawn to that. And this issue, particularly when we started to do the research for this and when it started to, you know, look like it was really something that needed to be told and, and more importantly, when it was obvious how difficult it was going to be to tell it in a way that humanized the issue, that was up close and personal. One of the most challenging parts about making this film in the first place was to get the earn the trust and engage and, and get the, the cooperation of parents who would be willing to put themselves out there, to have their faces seen and to divulge very intimate details of their of their lives and how this you know gender identity issue had was had impacted their relationships and their lives at large and 3 years ago or so this was much more under the radar and there was much more fear about coming stepping forward coming forward and that was the initial challenge of making this film how did it all start i mean was it something that you just sort of started seeing and thought, oh, gosh, there there needs to be more voice on this issue? I want to weigh in. I mean, it, it's a difficult issue to tackle for anyone. But like you said, so many parents are nervous about sharing their stories. Yeah, th- this was an issue that I was that I had familiarity with that was bubbling up, that was emerging as something that. I mean, what it reeked of to me was an ultimate breach in in the covenant between parent and child. 
and I was seeing it in my own school district. I was seeing it around me. There was so much about this that felt problematic, to say the least. And, you know, the way a journalist or, or a filmmaker, a documentary filmmaker, you know, often wades into something is, you know, your curiosity leads to a sense of horror and, and just a calling to, to land on that subject and say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to tell this story. So it doesn't happen overnight. It's sort of a slow process that, you know, that, that you, it, you find it, it, it reaches you, you, you know, it, it, it gestates you. You go down that path. And, you know, you, the more you know, the, you realize the less you know. And so, and so it becomes an, a, a journey and an exploration. And then, at a, and then at a certain point, you feel like you have enough of a handle on it to be the one who's going to tell the story. So long, so long as you can get the pieces to, to fall into place. And that's sort of the, the process. Yeah. And that's the hard part is getting all those pieces to fall into place. How did you find the parents? Did you have parents coming to you and saying, this is what's going on. I, I think more people need to be aware. So I want to tell my story. Or were you seeking people out? Well, you know, it, it was a bit of both. It started out as, as a networking exercise. And then ultimately, you know, what was happening some three years ago, and it's probably still the case, is most of these parents were or are kind of underground. They were using pseudonyms. They were they wouldn't they couldn't they wouldn't be seen. They were in chat groups that were carefully administered so that they you know there's a fear as you know we live in a culture now of continuous warfare, and what parents were finding is that when they were making their concerns, anxieties, you know, fears known, many were being doxxed or attacked or outed. I mean, J.K. Rowling is, is, the, is the ultimate example of speaking up on this issue. Of course, you know, she, she can withstand that, that sort of thing, but many parents had either had experienced or had felt that going public could become a threat to their place in their community, their jobs, their safety. And so I started to network with the parents who were essentially like meeting in secret, you know, kind of the equivalent of, 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 of a basement meeting, you know, but online. And little by little, I found that groups were forming because parents were coming together to try to understand and parse through an issue that was so confounding and even, you know, in dead name, as, as you can see, with all three parents, all three parents who, who, who dealt with this, with children who were at very different stages of their lives, one young boy, one 16-year-old teenager, female teenager, and then another young man who was already in his first year of college. But the common thread that runs through these stories is, especially at this time, now maybe, maybe we've turned the corner on this, but at the time, all of these parents were going through this. And at the time that I was researching this and wading into this topic, there was a sense of parents being blindsided, like not knowing what had happened, what was this. They sort of just had no grid for this. They had no, you know, roadmap for this. They didn't know where to turn. And what was astonishing to, to them, and this, this remains the case today, is that all of the, let's call them institutions, the schools, the guidance counselors, camp you know, therapists, 
and the medical doctors, everywhere they were turning, they, they, were, they, they were sort of up against this monolithic mentality of, of if your child says he or she is, is, is transgender, he or she is. And, and that was kind of the, the you know, there, there, was no, there, was, there was no place for these parents to turn, so they turned to one another. And so it became apparent to me that the best people to tell this story were the parents. There are other documentaries out there, and they they go for more of the shock and awe, or they're sort of sensationalist, or there are a lot of talking heads in them, and they're trying to explain the issues. But we felt the best way to tell the story was through the parents, who ultimately have experienced this sense of, of betrayal in that all of these institutions fail them and 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 they're kind of you know left on their own to to pick up the pieces well like you mentioned the the documentary focuses on three parents and their their children and tells their personal story of what they've been through the process of their child telling them i'm transgender and I, I don't want to ask you to give too much away because I want people to watch the documentary for themselves. But just give us a, a little bit of, of a tease for one of those stories, who the parent is, what happened, and what their journey has been. Well, the story that sticks with most is the story of Bill, whose son had experienced the loss of, through cancer, the loss of a leg when he was very young, then the death of his mother to cancer, and through his life had, had battled with recurring bouts of cancer. He was a very smart young man. He went off to a school up in, in, in upstate New York where he was studying engineering. And he, it like just really, by the, he got to school, uh, declared himself trans, shocked his father to the core who had never seen any sign of any of this. And... What the story that unfolds is, let's just say, the conflict between this child, you know, becoming sort of uh, sucked in, I think, to this ideology and choices that he wanted, unfortunate choices that he wanted to make versus his father, who was really trying to save his life. Let's leave it at that. But it was, it was, you know, this isn't, this is, I don't want to overstate it, but it, it was an epic, it is an epic, sort of almost Shakespearean, you know, story. Mm. Wow. Why did you decide to call the documentary Dead Name? So it is, in fact, something that, you know, Bill says at a certain point. I think that probably your audience knows or doesn't know that what Dead Name is, is when these child, children declare a trans identity, so much is, I would say, is really taken from them. And they consider their birth name, the name given to them at birth, to be their quote-unquote dead name. And you'll hear many stories about, you know, children, teens, flying into rage, fits of rage, if somebody dead names them, i.e. calls them the precious name that they were given at birth by parents who thought this through pretty carefully and, and that that name meant something. In, in Probably in every single case when you name a child, it, it probably means something. So one of the you know many things about this sort of obliteration of self through this transgender movement is to 
you start with something as core as taking away somebody's name or or considering somebody's name at birth something to be a dead name it's it's so symbolic of really trying to wipe away and erase somebody's identity that i mean i i don't know why why people you know can't see how egregious this is yeah have you personally received criticism for making this this documentary I have had nothing but joy. <laughs> First of all, you know, the, the film is available online through streaming, which can be either, you know, purchased or rented and or you can buy a DVD. And we have had sales or rentals from Bulgaria, from all over Scandinavia, from all over Western Europe, Saudi Arabia, all over the world which is one notable thing that is that is something I was not expecting, okay, is Israel. The feedback has been tremendous in, in terms of, you know, the, the appreciation for bringing these stories forward. Now, having said that, we've largely been covered, of course, in the conservative press. And I have said from the, from the outset that this film was non-political, which it is, and it's not about religion because it's, it's, it has nothing to do with religion. It's about, it's really a medical scandal and how it has impacted the family and how it has ruptured the bonds between parent and child. But as we kind of know, the mainstream press just won't really touch this in a way that looks at it through a critical eye. So, you know, all of it, we've had a lot of press but it's all been kind of on, on that side. We've, I've, we've done a lot of these podcasts, not necessarily a, a conservative podcast, but mainstream media is not going to focus on, on this film because, you know, it, it, they're, not, they're not, quote, I'm using air quotes, they're not allowed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I want to encourage all of our listeners to, of course, watch the film, check it out. Um, you can find it at deadnamedocumentary.com. Again, that's deadnamedocumentary.com. But Taylor, thank you for your time today. Thank you for just your, your work on covering this issue from the perspective of parents. I think it's it's critical to hear their hearts, to hear their stories are so powerful. So we really appreciate your time today. Yeah, thank you for having us. We appreciate it. Well, with that, that is going to do it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. As conservatives, we need your support in the podcast world. So give Problematic Women a Christmas gift this year and pull out your phone and go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening. Leave us a five-star rating and review and make sure that you hit that subscribe button. You never miss out on new shows. And next week is going to be our last show of 2023. It's going to be fun. We're going to have a full house. We'll be talking a lot about this year, next year, Christmas traditions. You're not going to want to miss it. It's going to be a fun time. So make sure to join us again next week for our last show of 2023. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. And be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.